Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, at a time like this, when markets are full of uncertainty, it works to uh, talk with someone who's gotten a lot of very big predictions right. And I want to bring in uh, that person, Mark Grant, chief strategist at Hilltop Securities, who uh, nailed the fact that President Trump was going to win the election in November and also has gotten bond calls right, as well as oil calls. Mark, thank you so much for joining us now. Uh, In your latest note, you were talking about oil. And as we see right now, oil is poised for its biggest weekly drop in at least four weeks. Um, Are we heading lower here? I think so, Lisa. First of all, thank you for your kind comments. I feel like if I could bow on the radio, I would do it. Um, We all saw it. (laughs) Yes, I think oil's headed probably 47.50, where we are exactly at this moment, is the technical support level. I think we're going to break it and head down towards uh, $45. I think the... American shale oil producers are in a fabulous position, the best position we've been in in 50 years to begin exporting oil, uh, bringing in revenues, uh, increasing our tax base. And in fact, the numbers are so big, Lisa, that it could literally balance the budget if we uh, start moving in that direction. Mark Grant, I want you to talk about risk and several of the items that you've recently written about having to do with risk and how people seem not to be able to perceive it. And you use the quote from Warren Buffett, risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. Yes, Pim, I think that's the correct statement. I think Mr. Buffett nailed it. The, uh, there are a number of risk areas right now that I uh, will not uh, be involved in uh, just because that's personally the way I do business with the big institutional accounts I talk to. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are both a lot of risk. I don't want anything to do with their bonds because we don't know what they're going to do with those two agencies. Um, You could look at uh, the... uh, European bank debt? Right, the European bank debt. The Tier 1 bonds, I think, have a tremendous amount of risk. Banco Popular is likely to... uh, go over the uh, edge of the cliff, and uh, then we're going to have to see how Europe deals with that situation. There have been big pain trades in both bonds. Uh, I said yields were going lower. I think I may have been one of the three people in the world that said it, and everybody (laughs) thought that we were going to have 3% yields right now in the 10-year. We're at 216 this morning, and uh, as Lisa mentioned, oil is the other big pain trade. Uh, OPEC keeps saying, uh, you know, they're going to cut back and cut back. The problem they have is we can produce more than they can. So, just let me break just to continue that thread. Cheap loans to buy things such as automobiles, commercial mortgage-backed securities. Right, those are two other areas, Pim, and I'm glad you mentioned them. One would be subprime auto loans. I think the automobile market has been saturated in a way almost like the subprime uh, real estate market was with very cheap credit. And I think we're about to end, uh, get to the end of that cycle, so I want nothing to do with those securities. And then CMBS, or commercial mortgage uh, asset-backed bonds of uh, real estate, especially anything connected with retail stores. Uh, Amazon and uh, the Internet companies are just eating the lunch of the 
traditional uh, retail stores and uh, I see a huge problem in that area of credit as well. Well, let's talk about what you do like. I'm wondering now that we see a 10-year yield on the Treasury of 2.16%, uh, do you think that yields go lower from here? Uh, are you advising clients to buy? I'm advising clients to um, go into a, a mixed picture, which I call cash flow investing, which is to buy corporate bonds, five to ten year space, get a yield of around 4%. By the way, corporate bonds right now, even after taxes, have better yields than municipal bonds. And then take half of their money and go into uh, what are called closed-end bond funds. They're about 1,500. There are seven or so I like. And they're all yielding around uh, 10% and higher. And they have a monthly check, which I think is critical. So a 10% yield, actually, because of the compound interest, is worth about 11.10%. So you put the two together, you're getting around 7.25%, 7 7.5% on your money. And I think most of the run in equities is uh, done. And I think that's a very good place to put money, both for institutions as well as for individuals. You know, I, Mark, I just want to push back a little bit because you said corporate bonds uh, in particular, leverage ratios have reached their all-time highs with some of these, particularly investment-grade companies. They've been uh, packing on debt at a faster pace, and they've been increasing their revenues. And it's been heavily weighted toward uh, telecommunication companies that face a somewhat uncertain future. Does that concern you? I, at least one, I think that's a fabulous point you're making. Uh, does it concern me when interest rates are this low? No. That would be my short answer. I, you know, I pay attention to it. I look at it. But you have to bear in mind the additional debt is going in at such low interest rates given uh, profit margins that they're just increasing the size of their business or doing stock buybacks in some cases. But I don't have a big concern about it, no. So, Mark, this looks like a very low-yield picture that you're advising your clients to expect. How much have uh, estimated forecasts for turns that you're uh, talking with your clients about? How much have they come down? Well, they've come down uh, substantially. The reason we're in this very low interest rate environment, in my opinion, is the ECB and the Japanese Central Bank now have bigger balance sheets than the Fed. The yields in Europe and in Asia are much lower, some of them uh, negative. At one point, we had over $11 trillion in negative yielding uh, securities. Uh, we're now down to probably around $8 trillion. But uh, the the monetization of debt by the central banks all over the world has been huge, and that just is uh, pushing yields down. And then I think, of course, with the Fed, that Mr. Trump has the ability at any point in time here to appoint four members of the Fed, if not more, but we know four for sure. I think they're going to be business people. I think the Fed is going to become much more pragmatic. And I think their call for this return to normalcy, which is an economic theory, I think is going to get overturned and as, as the new members of the Fed are appointed. Mark, speak if you can just briefly about pension liabilities that exist in the United States when it comes to municipalities, their bond issuance, and also uh, the uh, risks that may be uh, attended to those that people don't really understand. Certainly, Ben. The uh, uh, amount of pension liabilities is the biggest it's ever been, unfunded pension liabilities. I've advised uh, the institutions I speak with, insurance companies, money managers, to stay away and or take more assertive action in terms of uh, municipal pension funds. 
uh, they're in uh, a lot of them are in big trouble. We've seen, uh, you know, some uh, announcements in the press about some, but it was recently estimated by the Hoover Institute that uh, uh, Connecticut, for example, and their municipalities had about $65 billion in unfunded pension liabilities. Uh, we can look at Dallas. We can look at uh, right. a number of other uh, cities that have been mentioned in the press, Fort Worth, and uh, they're just huge problems out there uh, having to do with these pension funds. Thanks for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Mark Grant is the chief strategist at Hilltop Securities, giving us his view of risks that currently exist in the market that people may not be paying attention to. We're talking earlier about the jobs report that came out today, a disappointing headline number, uh, also showing that wages are not going anywhere. But perhaps uh, there is more optimism here uh, than meets the eye. I want to bring in Neil Dutta, who's head of U.S. economics for Renaissance, Renaissance Macro Research, who joins us by phone. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with the idea that perhaps this jobs report shows that the Fed's policy of holding rates low is actually still helping get people off the sidelines. That was a sentiment that you seem to express in a Bloomberg News article yesterday. Uh, Is that how you read this? Well, I don't read this report that way uh, because the labor force uh, participation rate uh, fell. And, um, you know, it fell for prime age workers as well, so 25 to 54-year-olds. You know, but I think the general trend for for, uh, prime age participation has been up, um, broadly speaking, since early 2015. Um, You know, if you look at um, I think what you're trying to get at is um, it is definitely true that um, I think easy monetary policy generally is, um, you know, pulling people on back into the workforce, um, you know, at the margins, right? So, you know, for example, um, part-time for economic reasons, that's down, right? The U6 unemployment rate, that's down. If you look at those not in the labor force that want a job right now, that's down. So, um, you know, that's the sign of a healthy labor market is that your, you know, long-term unemployment employment is down. So, I mean, that that tells you that if the labor market's strong enough to pull down the unemployed for the people that are the most difficult to bring uh, into employment, um, that's saying something. I mean, so if you uh, take a look at, for example, within the payroll report, I mean, leisure and hospitality uh, earnings, um, that number uh, relative to total private sector earnings, hourly earnings, is over 60%. So, you know, when you have a sector like leisure and hospitality, which is you know, I think most would agree, a low-wage sector um, rising relative to other industries in terms of wage growth, um, you know, that's a sign that income inequality in some respects is declining, right? So, um, I mean, I think the labor markets are tightening. Um, I think the Fed is going in June. Um, I think there was enough in this report. And, I mean, it's about taking a holistic approach. I mean, I think there's been enough to date to suggest that, you know, the headline payroll number today is probably not quite as weak as uh, as this was uh, reported. Um, I think the underlying trend, rather, is, is probably somewhat stronger than the number we got today. Um, so, you know, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, I think there's enough in there to, um, you know, to kind of draw some encouraging signs about the outlook. Neil, is there enough in there to draw any conclusion about what's going on with the yield curve and why it is flattening so much? 
Oh, well, I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I think that's, um, I, that to me, that's obvious. I mean, the wage number was sluggish and uh, labor force participation rate fell, which implies lower potential GDP. At the same time, I think, uh, you know, the odds of a June hike are fairly much set in stone at this point. Um, you know, while this number was weak, it's not quite as weak to shift the odds of, uh, of June. So, you know, the Fed's hiking uh, and potential growth is uh, slowing someone at the margin based on this data point, at least. And so you get a, you get a flatter yield curve. Um, now, I, I do think that, uh, you know, you have to weigh this, as I say, against the data that's come in. And GDP tracking is in the vicinity of around 3 to 4% in the current quarter. That was so, the Atlanta Fed report, right? Well, that was yesterday. I mean, we'll yeah. see what, the, what, what number they come up with today. I mean, the trade numbers, for example, probably push that number a little bit lower. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, I mean, GDP growth in the second quarter is going to show a meaningful rebound relative to the first. Um, and, you know, I think the odds are that when you average out the first two quarters of the year, you're growing at about 2.5%. Yeah. So you have to weigh that against um, against this jobs number. So if you have stronger GDP growth, but somewhat slower employment growth, what does that mean? That means productivity is going up. Right. And you know, that's, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, real quick question. If this report uh, does signal some kind of uh, slowing down of the, uh, the employment picture, do you think this takes the third hike for 2017 off the table for the Fed? It's possible. It's certainly possible. I mean, it's also possible that the GDP numbers are relatively healthy and that core inflation firms and the Fed can still go in in um, in September. I mean, I think the big story is, you know, in 2015 and 2016, the Fed needed overwhelming evidence to hike. Now they need overwhelming evidence not to, and we're not there yet. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Neil Dutta is the head of U.S. economics for Renaissance Macro Research, giving us his thoughts about today's jobs report and also about the future of U.S. GDP performance. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Yesterday, we got the announcement from President Trump that he plans to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord, uh, making the U.S. one of three nations globally that are not part of this pact. Uh, to get a better sense of what the implications really are, I want to bring in Rob Barnett. He is uh, based in London, our senior energy policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Rob, you know, after some closer examination, we're getting a lot of reports that perhaps this will make no difference whatsoever with respect to the U.S.'s adoption of uh, environmentally friendly sources of energy. What's your take on this? Well, it depends on whether you have a medium-term or long-term view. In the medium term, it really doesn't make a difference. Trump had already signaled that we weren't going to do the clean power plan and other types of policies in the U.S. So, frankly, being in the Paris Agreement or not didn't really change the landscape for policy in the U.S. But to your earlier point, the the 
industry has already been shifting to lower emissions without having the Paris Agreement or without having many of the policies that President Barack Obama was pushing for, emissions were declining by an average of about 1.3% a year in the U.S. for the last decade. So we've seen market declines without really having the policy. None of those fundamental underlying factors have changed that have been allowing for that decline to occur. Rob, can you tell us a little bit about cap-and-trade programs, how they currently work, and whether they are successful? Sure. So cap-and-trade, one thing is that often gets used in almost synonymous terms with Paris, the Paris Agreement or any of the policies being discussed in the United States. But the thing is, cap-and-trade is far from the norm. Less than 10% of emissions around the world are subject to cap-and-trade programs, and that's where you have a tradable credit for where emitters trade for the right to emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Now, there are a few such programs in the U.S., for instance, out in California. If you want to emit CO2, it costs about uh, a little over $14 per ton right now. But the interesting thing about that is for the jurisdictions that do have cap and trade, California, Europe, parts of Asia, they don't care whether Trump's in the climate uh, Paris Climate Agreement or not. So right now, the, the withdrawal of the U.S. has very little impact on the resolve of lawmakers in those jurisdictions to continue with those kind of programs. You know, Rob, you started out talking about how in the short term, it's hard to see that there's going to be a significant difference. What about the long term? Well, over the long term, it is quite likely that policy is going to be needed to continue to drive emissions lower uh, if we're going to hit this uh, you know, two-degree uh, warming threshold, so ha- having temperatures go no more than two degrees. So uh, interesting to note that Paris in itself didn't get us to that two-degree threshold. So even if, you, if all countries complied with Paris, you wouldn't get there. So an a d- incremental policy, new policy is needed to drive emissions lower over the long term, at least with the current technology mix. So if you had uh, a future president who thought like President Donald Trump does on this issue, you might not see those kinds of policies coming in and driving those new technologies into the marketplace. But at least in the short run, it's not that meaningful. Long term, though, if you look out over kind of 20, 30, 40 years, uh, it, it would be meaningful. So it just depends on how long we continue with the president who doesn't really want to tackle the issue. Well, the president yesterday in speaking in the Rose Garden about the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord mentioned the coal industry. What are your thoughts about the coal industry and is there a revival likely to happen? Certainly not in the U.S. and we're seeing the uh, use of coal slow globally. So uh, the plants that have already closed in the United States, they're not coming back. It's interesting to note, even with President Trump and his pro-coal rhetorical stance, we're continuing to see coal plants uh, closures being announced from companies like AES and others that have said, even since he's been elected, that they're going to close their coal plants. And over in Europe and elsewhere, you're seeing a lot of resolve to tackle coal. So France, Emmanuel Macron has said he wants to close all of the coal plants in France by 2023. Here in the UK, they're aiming to have all coal plants closed by 2025. So none of that is changing in spite of the 
rhetoric that's coming out of President Donald Trump. So in our view, at least, it's going to be very difficult to uh, drive incremental new coal demand from loosening some of this policy in the U.S. It's just not going to work. Yeah, I was just going to mention that uh, just yesterday, Brayton Point Power Station in Somerset in Massachusetts, that's the largest coal-fired plant in New England, um, went dark on Wednesday. Uh, It's part of the shutdown. It's been underway uh, for several years. That's right. You got to keep in mind that uh, New England is one of the parts of the U.S. that is pushing very hard on the issue of climate, whether you have a president like Donald Trump in place or not. In the Northeast, just like in California, they've got cap and trade in place. Uh, so Brayton Point would have been subject to that trading program, and it and it increases the cost of using uh, coal if you if you have to pay for those emissions. So uh, certainly, uh, in any state where you have that kind of program in place, you're going to see less uh, less emphasis on using coal, more emphasis on natural gas and renewables. Thank you very much. Rob Barnett is our senior energy policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us from London. Just go to BI Go on the Bloomberg for more information. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.